Today we're going to be reading John 12, 12 to 25. The next day, the great crowd who had come to the festival heard that Jesus was coming into Jerusalem and went to meet him with palm branches in their hands, shouting, God save him. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. God bless the king of Israel. For Jesus had found a young ass and was seated upon it, just as the scripture foretold. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. The disciples did not realize the significance of what was happening at the time, but when Jesus was glorified, then they recollected that these things had been written about him and that they had carried them out for him. The people who had been with him when he had summoned Lazarus from the grave and raised him from the dead were continually talking about him. This accounts for the crowd who went out to meet him, for they had heard that he had given this sign. Seeing all this, the Pharisees remarked to one another, you see, there's nothing one can do. The whole world is running after him. Among those who had come up to worship at the festival were some Greeks. They approached Philip with the request, sir, we want to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew went with Philip and told Jesus. Jesus told them, the time has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I tell you truly that unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains a single grain of wheat. But if it does, it brings a good harvest. The man who loves his own life will destroy it, and the man who hates his life in this world will preserve it for eternal life. If a man wants to enter my service, he must follow my way, and where I am, my servant will also be. And my Father will honor every man who enters my service. Amen. Whoops. Thank you so much, Kaylee. Good morning. I'm a little ways away. Apparently, we don't have light in the middle, so I'm going to try to include everyone in the auditorium today uh, as, we, as we talk. I'm so excited to talk about this subject of glory uh, and the way that Jesus redefines and um, teaches us in such a different way than the world does. Um, I think Kaylee's story is a great example of that. March is a time of great glory. March Madness, that kind of trickled into April this year, uh, reminded me of some glory years. 1971-72, were those great years? Yes. Uh, city championship basketball. I'm sure you all heard about the, the pass down the entire length of the floor that led to the winning. You don't remember. I remember, and maybe that girl who threw the pass remembers, but I'm guessing nobody else remembers. Um, And that's a little bit how fleeting glory is. It was a lot like those three free throws, though, that Kyle Guy will remember for the rest of his life that took Virginia to their first NCAA finals. But will any of us remember? A few next year, but not for long. He might be a little like Elvis. Elvis recently had his exhibit in Las Vegas taken down. It was a a legal dispute. But some young folks who were visiting and heard about it said, Elvis who? (laughs) Who? I never saw that coming. Um, Or how about the two million people that turned out for a New York City ticker tape parade in 1899? You remember the familiar name of Admiral George Dewey. Two million people turned out for that parade. And we would say, Admiral who? What did he do? The wisest man who ever lived wrote this cheery conclusion about fame in Ecclesiastes 2.16. Solomon said, the wise person and the fool 
will both die, and no one will remember either one for long. No one will remember either one for long because glory is fleeting. Palm Sunday is the day we celebrate Jesus' ticker tape parade into Jerusalem, his one shining moment of adulation and fame and favor. And Jesus uses his moment, this moment in the spotlight, to reframe and to redefine glory. Jesus speaks of enduring glory. He speaks of a fruitful glory. And he speaks of this descending path that he is on and that he invites us to join him on this week. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful people, grateful for Jesus in our lives, grateful for the transformation that comes from his love and forgiveness. This morning, would you give us eyes to see this passage in a new way, ears to hear truth that we need and nourish Nourishment for our soul, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So it's a very interesting context here in in John 12. Uh, Jesus' popularity has been growing, especially because of his miracles. And in chapter 12, he's kind of at the peak of his fame because of Lazarus' resurrection. People hear that Jesus is back in Bethany. These are kind of his best friends, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, that he visits often. And the verses just preceding our reading say, the large crowd of the Jews then learned that Jesus was there, back in Bethany, and they came, not for Jesus' sake only, but that they also might see Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. And so what's the reaction of the religious leaders? But the chief priests planned to put Lazarus to death also. So their plan is to put Jesus to death. Now they need to put Lazarus to death because on account of him, that is Lazarus, many of the Jews were going and believing in Jesus. So this is the crowd that is accompanying Jesus as he comes to Jerusalem. These curiosity seekers and new believers are coming with him from Bethany. And then these crowds who are in Jerusalem celebrating Passover join them along the route. When we understand the events that are happening that day, we will come to understand that this is much more like a protest march than like a parade. The Romans, who occupied Israel in the first century, they get it. They are on high alert during national Jewish holidays because it's often a time when rebellion leaders and uprisings happen because people have access to crowds of folks. Hundreds of thousands of Jews from all over the Mediterranean would come on this annual pilgrimage to Jerusalem to celebrate this national holiday. Passover. And Passover is the beginning of a whole week of partying and celebrating because they are celebrating their freedom. It's a holiday that celebrates their freedom from Egypt, where they were enslaved for 400 years. So imagine the tension in the air as the Jewish nation celebrates freedom while under the thumb for almost 100 years of Rome. They are here celebrating historic freedom. They are not free. Herod, in fact, in, in, in concern about uprisings in the Jewish nation, had built a huge tower. It was right next to the temple, 115 feet high. It kind of looks like a prison 
uh, guard tower, and the, the soldiers could literally look into the temple courts and watch for what was going on. They even had a secret passageway under from the garrison soldiers into the temple so that they could quickly squelch any sign of revolt. Symbols have a, have a great importance, as you know, in the political world and to political movements. It's why, for example, in 2017, Berlin forbade neo-Nazis from displaying swastikas in their marches because symbols are very powerful in political movements. The palm is that kind of symbol for Israel. It was an emblem of national victory. Their historical books record how when they had crushed and thrown out um, oppressors, especially there's, there's an event in the Book of Maccabees recorded from 171 BC where they have this parade into the city with carrying palms uh, to the sound of cymbals and harps and chanting hymns. And it is a symbol of their victory. The palm was their political sy- symbol of freedom and specifically political victory. Then the words the people were chanting, those were equally inflammatory. Hosanna, which we have come to know as save us now, perhaps even more forcefully we can hear it when we hear it described as victory now. They are chanting and demanding, uh, demanding a king, demanding victory over Rome. They also quote here from Psalm 118, the words, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, come from Psalm 18. But if you go and read that Psalm, you'll realize the people actually add to that Psalm. The rest of the words, blessed is the king of Israel, do not appear in the Psalm. The people have added their demand for a king, claiming Jesus as a king rather than Caesar in this march. They are directly protesting Roman rule. This is a protest march. They want a king, a conqueror who will ride in on a white horse with a sword and crush their enemies. And Jesus here responds with a corrective word and with a corrective action. Remember, there's a huge crowd. I'm sure there's no way for him to speak to them. And so he symbolically speaks to them when he chooses a donkey, because the donkey is a symbol of both peace and humility. And then he, he chooses a biblical quote. It's sort of like dueling Bible verses, if you've ever been in one of those battles. He's using his own biblical, biblical quote to protest their biblical quote. And he chooses the, the, um, the author, Zechariah, the prophet. He's using a teaching technique here that's called remez. It was used in the first century where teachers would give a hint. If you notice in Jesus' teaching, he rarely just gives, like we do such a linear answer, like here's the question, here's the answer, here's the question. Jesus more often, question, he answers with a question, right? Or he uses this technique, remez, where he gives a hint about something and um, you have to participate sort of in the learning Uh, For example, we use these kind of shortcuts. We would use 9-11 as a shortcut to talking about September 11th, not Josh's birthday, which it is. Mark it on your calendar. But when we say 9-11, it's a shortcut to talking about the terrible attack and loss of life that happened in 2001. 
So when Jesus and the New Testament writers quote Hebrew scripture, I want you to know they are not proof texting. They are not picking a verse and making it mean something. They are, in fact, referring to the whole larger context. And you should always go back and read the scripture surrounding what is quoted. Because these writers and speakers expect their listeners to know the context of the passage. So Jesus says from Zechariah 9, Shout and cheer, daughter of Zion. Raise the roof, daughter of Jerusalem. Your king is coming. A good king who makes all things right. A humble king riding on a donkey, a mere colt of a donkey. That's the remez, the hint. His listeners know that Zechariah goes on to describe that king very specifically. Here's the description. I've had it with war. No more chariots in Ephraim. No more swords, spears, bows, and arrows. He, that is the good king that you're welcoming on a donkey, will offer peace to the nations, a peaceful rule worldwide from the four winds to the seven seas. Can you imagine hearing that word in that setting? The crowds are crying for victory, for war, for crushing of the enemy. And Jesus speaks this corrective word. Perhaps it's part of the reason that this crowd, this, this parade, this march, will turn in three days into a mob screaming for his death because he's preaching disarmament. He's preaching not the crushing of their enemies that the crowd hopes for. In his moment of growing honor and glory, he's speaking to another glory. And this really is his glorious shining moment. Chapter 12 outlines how he is honored, first by Mary's anointing of him, and then this honoring by the crowd, verses 20 through 26, he's honored by foreigners, including Greeks. Verse 28, he's honored by the voice of his father, affirming him. He's honored by the words of the prophets spoken about him. And the chapter ends with even some of the religious leaders honoring and believing in Jesus. But we know this is a fleeting moment of glory. In just three days, the crowd will flip in opposition to him. His followers will desert him. His heavenly father will be silent. This moment of fleeting glory is a teaching moment for Jesus as he points to a reframing and a redefinition of glory for his followers. Listen to his words. Verse 23, time's up. The time has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Listen carefully. Unless a grain of wheat is buried in the ground, dead to the world, it is never any more than a grain of wheat. But if it is buried, it sprouts and reproduces itself many times over. Huh? This is not what they are expecting to hear. First of all, it's the first time Jesus ever says, yes, it's time. All the way through the Gospels, he says, not time. It's not time yet. It's not my hour. Don't, don't start putting me up there yet. It's not time. So I'm guessing the disciples were delighted to hear him say, yes, it's finally time for glory. 
But then he reframes their understanding of glory. It's not going to be the glory of crushing an enemy, but the glory of surrender. It's not going to be the glory of being a leader in charge of many, but the glory of a servant who washes the feet of his followers. It's not going to be the glory of independence and personal power, but the glory of yielding to the will of God. It's the glory of our tulip bulbs right now, right? The only people who have tulips are those who buried them in the dirt through the winter and the dark. The glory in the fall of tomatoes and lettuce and beans requires that we bury seed in the ground and leave it there. This is literally the cycle of life on planet Earth. All life comes out of death. Things have to die to become the building blocks of everything that is born or grows. Today, all of us, our lives are being sustained by the meals we ate yesterday, which required the death of plants and animals and fish and birds. And Jesus chooses this cycle of glory, the cycle that begins with death. Our renown tells us that our glory is hidden in our pain. Our glory is hidden in our pain if we allow God to bring the gift of him, of his life, of his joy, of his hope in our experience of it. Glory out of pain. Glory out of death. I wonder what looks dead in your life this morning. What's a place of great frustration? A place where you have been unable to bring about the life you long for. A place of powerlessness. I wonder if it's possibly that place that is a seed, a seed of hidden glory. A place where God's light and life and joy might be able to burst out of that hard-shelled thing if you surrendered it to the dirt. Dirt in God's hands. Remember Genesis, what he made out of dirt? It's in the hands of God, burying it, giving it up. This thing that we look at and it has no life. It's a hard-shelled thing that we cannot make produce fruit in our lives, surrendered to the hands of God. Maybe it's a behavior that you despair of ever being able to change. Or maybe it's a health diagnosis right now that leads you living in the shadow of death. Where in your life are you hanging on to a dead-looking seed, a job that's killing you, a dream that has died, a relationship that is stuck, an attitude that isolates you, from lasting relationships. I loved Kaylee's story this morning, and she so beautifully expressed the freedom that came for her in that moment of surrendering her secret, allowing herself to be seen without a mask by another human being was the beginning of life and fruit in her life. It's called the dark night of the soul because God's work so often happens in that hidden darkness that feels like dirt. 
It's been my experience teaching. I taught for 10 years every week and loved it, enjoyed the experience. It's been my experience in the last while here that preaching weeks for me feel like I'm in the dirt. They're hard weeks. I don't love it. And I also am aware how much that when I get up here on Sunday, I am truly aware that any fruit that comes from this is God's. It is God bringing a hard, dead thing to, to life. God's fruit develops in the humus. Recognize that word, humus, organic matter, the relationship to human, the relationship to humility. The organic waste of our lives is the very soil of glory. And I see it in your stories, and I see it in mine, how God has grown a crop of compassion with each hospital visit you've made, where God has grown a crop of humility with each failure and with ongoing, unfixed struggles that you live with, how God is growing a crop of willingness and openness to new ideas from places where you are beating your head against the wall. How God can grow a crop of intimacy with him through unrelentingly painful days. Jesus literally chose a descending path. On the Mount of Olives, this is an old picture from the 1900s, so the paths are more clear, but on the left there, it's actually called the ascending path. And on the right, is, it's called the descending path. And he literally chose the descending path down the Mount of Olives into the city of Jerusalem. He says in verse 25, the person who loves his own life will destroy it. And the person who hates his life in this world will preserve it for eternal life. This is a hard one to understand. It's certainly not talking about self-loathing. God does not encourage us towards self-loathing. It's not telling us to beat ourselves up or harm our bodies. I want you to think about this carefully, what it might mean to hate your life. I love what Dale Bruner writes about this. He says, if one hates the way life is lived in this world in its consummately selfish way, and then in our own culpable involvement in that way, then one will, by living counterculturally, preserve one's life into a deep, lasting life. So what we hate is, we hate that which is in us, which is not of the life of God. The way our self-seeking harms those around us. We hate the way our culture encourages independence and self-preservation instead of community and being part of a family of human beings loving and caring for one another. We hate the way our life as rebels contributes to toxic waste in our families, spiritually, emotionally, relationally, physically in this universe. The message translates this verse this way. In the same way, anyone who holds on to life just as it is destroys that life. But if you let it go, reckless in your love, you'll have it forever, real and eternal. Can't you just picture people in your life who are clinging to things that are killing them? 
clinging to things that are death for them. Jesus says it is planting those in the soil. This is the descending path to glory. What Richard Rohr calls falling upward. By letting go of our little life, our false self, our plans, our control, our ease and comfort, we become available to the, God, to, to the life that God wants to create in us, to the glory of who we are when we are fully alive in God. 2 Corinthians 3.18 puts it this way, nothing between us and God, our faces shining with the brightness of his face, and so we are transfigured much like the Messiah, our lives gradually becoming brighter and more beautiful as God enters our lives and we become like him. Or in the Amplified, we with unveiled face continually see as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are progressively being transformed into his image from one degree of glory to even more glory, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. What looks like in our lives often the greatest defeat, disaster, loss may be the exact soil conditions for a crop of fruitfulness if it causes you to look at God, if it causes you to get rid of the masks you wear. That's what that is talking about, veils being taken away to be authentic with God and with each other. I'll never forget Don, a man I attended church with in Zion, Illinois, many years ago when my husband was a youth pastor. Don's wife had MS, and Don worked at a job, perhaps below his true abilities, because he wanted to be available to his wife and kids. Don cooked the meals, Don cleaned the house, Don made the lunches for his children, Don went to teacher conferences and drove his daughter and often her friends to the youth group. His daughter Debbie was just a sweetheart. She was a funny, smart, and extremely kind high schooler. And often it seemed like the high schoolers would congregate at her house because it was the fun house. Don's wife was in a wheelchair. And when I knew the family, I was a newlywed, and I watched their marriage very carefully, and I noticed the way Don showered affection and sweetness on his wife. And I watched what it took when they came to church on Sunday, and they'd pull into the parking lot, and he would get the wheelchair out and carry it up the steps because there was no elevator, and then go back to the car and carry his wife up the steps of the church and put her in the chair and sit in the back where there was a space for them and for the wheelchair for the service. Now I'm 63. First service, I said 62. I forgot I was 63. (laughs) Um... And I know that there must have been days in that family of incredible frustration. There must have been tears of resentment and perhaps anger and lots of sadness, I'm sure. But I got to see the glory of that family. I got to see the weightiness of what Don was producing in his life. I got to see the beauty. I got to see the brightness of the way Don was dying to himself and his rights and his dreams and his expectations of life, and I got to see the fruitfulness, 
the fruitfulness in the life of his daughter and of our whole community who watched that family. And I'm sure that that glory has endured into the life of his grandchildren and great-grandchildren. I am so thankful that Don took the descending path to glory. I am so thankful that Jesus took the descending path to glory. This morning, as we close our time, I want you to consider where God might be calling you to a downward road. You know, there are meals to be made for people recovering from surgery and childbirth. There are lawns to be mowed for families dealing with illness. There are visits to be offered. And every week, our deacons and volunteers and many of you take that descending path of serving others. Maybe God is calling you downward to serving and really loving a difficult two-year-old or 12-year-old or a parent. Maybe your downward call is one of acceptance, accepting the limits of your health or age, your bank account, the limits of your marriage, the limits of your singleness. It is costly, and it is glorious to follow Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for the glory that you show us, the downward road, the road you came on, not hanging on to your prerogative of being God, but humbling yourself and becoming a servant, even one who would die for us. God, we are so grateful for Holy Week, this week that we have to consider you as you walk that downward path. Encourage us, Father, to join you. Show us the places where there is a dead seed that we can bury deep in the soil of your love and care, trusting that if there is life in it, you will bring life from it. Help us to turn those to you today, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.